good to be together this morning. Thanks for joining us for worship. We come this morning, now we've been working through the last three books in the Old Testament. So Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and we come today to chapter 6 in the book of Zechariah. And we are going to see the last of these eight visions that God has given to Zechariah on a single night. And if you've been with us through this whole section, you're probably saying, yes, the visions are done. (laughs) But it's been really good. We've seen God communicate some wonderful things to his people. He's issued them calls and warnings to come back to him. And he has also made great promises to his people in these visions that we've seen in this section. Now, one of the things that I've been thinking about ever since we started this section, and it wasn't really a hiccup for me or like a uh, frustration, but I just was wondering why at times God chooses to communicate in somewhat unusual ways. Why doesn't he just come out and say what he wants to say clearly. I mean, at times he does, right? Some places we read in the Bible, it's just boom, it's clear, we know exactly what he's saying. And other times, the message seems to be more obscured in a message, or a vision, or uh, even Jesus in his earthly ministry often spoke in parables, rather than just directly saying what he wanted to say. Now, God has his own purposes for this, You can read in John 12, several places in the book of Isaiah, that God at times purposefully prevents the message from being understood, and that's his business. But as I was thinking about this, I think I came up with at least one thing to encourage us with as we look at some of these places in Scripture that are just harder to come to a conclusion. It takes more work, it takes more effort to get there. And the thing that it tells me when God communicates this way is that God wants his people to engage their minds when they hear from him. Christianity is not a shut off your brain and meditate kind of religion. It is not meant to go in one ear and out the other and you carry on with your life. The desire of God is that we know him through his word and that when we hear from him, whether it be in a sermon or a podcast or you open the scriptures, whatever it is that we engage our God-given faculties of thinking and reason to understand what God has told us. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to have a college degree to understand the Bible. We've already said in previous weeks the Bible is clear to the point where anyone who can read and understand can know what God requires of them. So I'm just thinking, kids especially, younger people, right now your minds are, don't take this the wrong way, wonderfully empty. (laughs) In the sense that you don't have the responsibility of taxes and mortgage and car payment and work and schedule, all that stuff. You especially, young people, should apply yourself. Think about the Word of God and what he's saying, and at times God communicates in these ways so that we don't just hear it and go, oh yeah, okay, well that's what he's saying, and move on. We are meant to engage with the text. Think about it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he said, think over what I say, for in everything the Lord will give you understanding. So there's this relationship between engaging our mind, which God gave us, and understanding what God has revealed to us in his word. And as I was thinking about these sections, I thought, 
That's probably one of the reasons why God doesn't always just spoon feed us everything, but he wants us to interact with it. You know this from experience. The more you interact with something, the more familiar you become with it, the better you know it, right? Computer guys, you work with a system, you work with a program, you're writing code. The more you interact with that, the more you know it. Even secular philosophers get this idea. Confucius, who ironically lived around the same time as Zechariah, 500s BC, said, when I hear something, I forget it. When I see something, I remember it. But when I do it, I understand it. Okay, so what is going on here when God reveals to us things that are not immediately understandable, we are supposed to think about it. Engage your mind so that when you finally understand, when God opens your understanding and allows you to see it, you know it. You can hang on to it. I think this is one of the reasons that God communicates in sometimes more obscure language. So just be encouraged. If you read over sections of the Bible and you come away and go, man, I just don't get it. Don't forget it and just move on. Think about it. I think that really honors the Lord when we use what he gave us to understand his word. So that's just something I thought about this week because we have to admit that some of this stuff is really hard to understand. For me it is, and for you it is. So keep working, keep pressing into the word of God and study. If that means you've got to find some resources or find an older, more mature believer, whatever the case, it is worth it to think about and meditate on the word of God so that we understand what he has told us. Now, Zechariah 6 is divided pretty neatly into two sections. Verses 1 through 8, we see the last of these eight visions. We're going to take that as a section. And then 9 through 15 show us this symbolic action of this crown being placed on Joshua's head. And with both of those sections, I want to show you, this is the main point this morning, that God is able to make and keep his promises. God is able to make and keep his promises. This is the greatest encouragement, I think, for us. I'm going to tell you when we get to the end why this is. But God doesn't throw away his words. He doesn't just say things uh, with no meaning. Every word that comes from the mouth of God is true and right and for our good, and the promises he makes will come to pass. And I'm going to show you from this text this morning examples and instances of God keeping his promise to his people and how that can be a great encouragement for us. So I want to pray together, and then we'll take each of these sections one by one. So would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we are so thankful to be able to gather together in this place this morning. God, you have been so gracious and patient and kind to this church, to this body of believers in providing for everything we have needed giving us a facility to meet in. We thank you for the kindness of the glorious church that allows us to meet here. Lord, there are so many reasons to be thankful to you this morning. And on top of all of those reasons, perhaps the most important thing, Lord, to be thankful for is that you have given us your word and how lost we would be without the instruction and the example and the testimony of the scriptures. I love your word, and I pray that as a result of our time here this morning, that each one of us would have heightened affections, that our love for you and your word would grow as a time of our, as a result of our time here together, Lord. We are totally dependent upon you, and so we ask that you would come 
by your spirit, minister to us, Lord. Help us to see what your word says and to be able to put it into practice. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6 and follow along as we read this first section. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 from Zechariah chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go towards the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now as we look at this eighth and final vision... In the book of Zechariah, in verses 1 through 8, we see several similarities to the very first vision that we saw. If you were here ooh, six or seven weeks ago and we started Zechariah, there was a vision of a very similar scene. And God was depicting the state of Israel. They were kind of down in this valley, but there was also a lot of similarities, a lot of similar imagery. So let's start by looking at what's similar, because when we see a section like this that has something on the front end, and then the same thing on the back end that tells us that there's connection. They're kind of bookending this section of the text so we can see some similarities and make some connections. So in both visions, we have horses of different colors. In both visions, we see the horses doing the will of God, going out from his presence and accomplishing his purposes. And in both visions, we see the idea of rest as a result of what these horses do, only it's very different in the rest, and we'll get there just in a moment. But now let's consider how these visions are different, or the uniqueness of this as we look at verses 1 through 8. While both visions have horses, the horses in this vision serve a very different purpose. If you remember from the first one, they were scouts, okay? They were individual horses that went out and were gathering information. They were investigating, they were to bring a report back to the Lord as to what was going on in the nations around Israel. In this last vision, the horses are pulling chariots. Now there's one use for chariots, and that is war, conquest, destruction of the enemy. They're kind of equivalent to today's tank. It was meant to evoke these feelings of kind of shock and fear in the enemies of the people. And these chariots are said to go out from between two mountains. Now, remember, this is figurative language, and we know that especially in that day, chariots could not traverse mountains. They would have fallen apart. So we need to see this as symbolic imagery. So what does it mean that they are coming out from between two mountains? Well, it means that they are coming out from the presence of God. And here's where I say this. In 1 Kings 7, we read about the temple that Solomon built, and we've seen a lot of references to Solomon's temple through this section. So when you came into Solomon's temple, there were two huge pillars of bronze that you went through or came out of as you entered and exited the temple. 
So when we see, and especially when these people who were living in this context heard two mountains of bronze, they would have equated that with the temple of the Lord. So when these chariots are said to come out from between these mountains of bronze, we should understand that as them coming out from the presence of God, that pillars of the temple are represented and equated here to these mountains of bronze. Now, bronze in that day, of course, had significantly more value than it does now. We kind of poo-poo bronze under gold and silver and everything else now. But in that day, it was not only valuable, but it was symbolic. If something was made of bronze, it was thought to be immovable, permanent. Strength was associated with this metal. And so not only do we see them coming out from the presence of God represented by these two mountains, but that the presence of God is immovable in a sense that he is there and established. So they come out from the presence of God carried along by his spirit, which we see in this reference to the four winds of heaven comment in verse 5. You remember wind is the same word for spirit. Uh, in chapter 5 we saw that the, was it chapter 4? Yeah, I think it was 4. Uh, where, the, where the women with the wings are coming on the wind carried by the spirit, a similar thing here. And this tells us that these chariots are not only coming from the presence of God, but they are empowered by God to do what he is bidding them to do. Now, there's no rationale given for the color of the horses in this text. By the way, this is all going somewhere, so bear with me on these details. I know this can be a lot. There's no rationale given here, but I would just write this down in your bulletins. Read Revelation 6, 1 through 8. We're not going to take time to read that now. But in that text, we see similar colored horses going out as the Lamb unrolls the scrolls of judgment, these colored horses go out and judge and conquer and destroy the enemies of God. I think that's a similar picture to what's happening here in Zechariah, although we don't get the answers to what they're doing. So just as in the first vision, these four chariots go out in every direction. That's the the four winds. We think of the four points of a compass. The picture is that they go out and totally do the bidding of the one who sent them. And here's what happens. The black and the white ones go to the north. So to the north of Jerusalem is Babylon, which we already have established is kind of the center of sin and wickedness. So they are going to Babylon to judge the kind of headquarters of wickedness. The other ones go to the south. This is the direction of Edom or Egypt. Also a very likely candidate for the judgment and the punishment of God as they had oppressed the people of God. There was no reason to go to the east or the west because to the east was the desert, to the west was the sea. So if some of you are hearing this and going, okay, but what about the fourth horse? It doesn't say anything about that. Well, we don't know. And remember, this is, this is imagery, okay? This is not literal. So it doesn't really matter. We need to go with what we see and understand that we don't need to know every single nuanced detail of the vision to understand the main point, which is God sends out these troops to accomplish his purpose in judging and punishing the nations for the way that they have treated his people. So when they go out, a similar report is brought back as the first vision that there is rest. But notice the difference. In the first vision, the horses come back and they say, All the nations are at rest while God's people are struggling and in turmoil. And the angel of the Lord cries out to God in that first vision and says, How long is this going to be the case? This isn't fair. How long are you going to let your people suffer while everyone around them is at peace? 
And that question, asked in chapter 1, gets answered right here in chapter 6. It's not the nations who are at rest after these war chariots go out. It is the Spirit of God at rest because the nations now have been dealt with just like God promised. Promises made, promises kept. The nations that oppressed and abused the people of God are dealt with by the judgment of God and the report that comes back is that, okay, the Spirit of God is at rest. All the nations have been dealt with according to the word of the Lord and now it's not them that's at rest. They've been dealt with. They've been punished. But the Spirit of God is at rest. Promises made, promises kept. Now this ends the section of visions in the book of Zechariah, but let's continue reading and then we're going to tie both of these things together. So pick up in verse 9 and we'll read the rest of the chapter. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head, excuse me, of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now this last section, very closely related to the previous but it tells us of this symbolic action that is taken. So you understand when I say symbolic action, I mean an action was taken, but it's not so much about what happened there as how that represents and shows us something else that is either happening or is going to happen. So God tells Zechariah to take some of the gold and the silver that these exiles are bringing back with them from Babylon and to make a crown out of it and place it on the head of Joshua. Now, The fact that God tells him to take this specific gold and silver. He doesn't say just find some and bring it and do this. He says take it specifically from these people. That is very significant. I'm going to tell you why. That serves to reinforce my thesis for the whole chapter that God makes and keeps his promises. Do you remember when we studied Haggai? and the early parts of Zechariah, that God had promised to shake the nations, to free up their resources so that the people of God would have everything they needed to build the temple and to do everything surrounding the work of the temple. Do you remember this? God's going to shake them, kind of loosen up what they have, and it will be given to his people. That was a promise that God made. The people didn't have much returning from Babylon. They had been in exile for 50 years. And it's not exactly as if they were rolling in it as exiles. Okay, so when they returned to Jerusalem, they don't have much. And there was doubt as to how this grandiose temple that was going to exceed the former temple in glory, how was that going to be built when the people had nothing? 
But God steps in and says, don't worry about that. I will provide for everything you need by my power and by my spirit. Let me make a connection here. Because I'm saying the fact that Zechariah is told to get the gold from these people specifically means something. And here's what it means. It means that God keeps his promise. If we go back to the book of Ezra, uh, when we started this series, I said you should read that book in in tandem here because it fills in a lot of the gaps. We read in Ezra chapter 7 about a letter that Artaxerxes, who is the king of Persia at this time, he sends with the exiles. And this letter is to be presented. If anyone gives them any grief or any flack about, hey, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? Where are you going with that? This is a letter kind of giving the blessing from the king. And here's what we read in part of this letter, Ezra 7. Listen to this. And keep in mind what I've just said about the promises of God. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand and also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia and with the free will offering of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then, again this is the king talking, with this money you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs and grain offerings and drink offerings and you shall offer them <clears throat> on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Do you understand what's happening in that little passage? Artaxerxes is no lover of God. He has no covenant with Yahweh. He has no reason to supply for the temple out of his own treasury, from his own people. And yet... God has made a promise. And he fulfills that promise by shaking the king and prompting him to be generous and benevolent to the people of God so that we read that he gives freely from his own money to the people of Israel silver and gold so that they can go back and do what the Lord has called them to do. This is remarkable. And so when we get back to Zechariah 6, we read that he is to take from the silver and the gold being brought back by these people, given by the king of Babylonia, the Persian ruler. And in that little detail, that small little detail, we see God makes promises and God keeps promises. Isn't that something? What an unusual little thing. And yet God puts these things in his words, I think, to encourage us and to remind us he never ever goes back on his word and he will always do what he says. If you have ever doubted or if you are right now doubting God's ability or his faithfulness to keep his word and to do what he has promised to do, read this book. There are examples all over here of God keeping his promise. Now, during the time of the exile, the king had been removed from the throne, right? When one nation overcomes another nation, they don't allow the standing monarch to stay, but they take him out. They can't allow that. So there had not been a king in Israel for 50 years, the entire time of the exile. Actually, almost 70 years, because this was 20 years after they had returned. Now, the crown 
that was to be made is placed on Joshua's head. Joshua is the high priest. This is a symbolic action to sanctify it, to say that the person who wears this crown will be holy to the Lord, that he should be a king who follows after the law of God. And it also shows us this typological connection between Joshua as the priest and this coming king. Now, that's a big word, typological. All that means is that one character or situation serves to tell us about another one. So an easy example would be Adam is a type of Christ. We see them acting similarly. Joseph is a type of Jesus, okay? You get the connection? So we can look at Joseph's life and look at Jesus' life and say, oh, there's some, we should recognize what's going on because we know who Joseph is. So that's what typology is. It's the study of seeing how certain figures point to and illustrate future figures. So we see this in here, that there's this connection between the king and the priest. But in addition to that, we're seeing something that is very unusual for the Jews in this day. The office of king and the office of priest were never to be mixed. In the whole history of Israel, there was never a time when the king functioned as a priest or vice versa. And there's a good reason for this. Kings were men of war. They were men of blood. In fact, God prevents David from building his temple, right? Because he had shed too much blood, which is what kings do. There's really good reasons for this. Because of the nature of priestly duties, they had to be completely set apart. They followed a more strict guideline for their conduct because not only did they serve the people, but they were serving God himself. In fact, this mixing of roles is what disqualified Saul from remaining as the first king in Israel. You remember this? Saul got impatient waiting for Samuel to come and offer sacrifices, so he does it himself and God says, nope, that's not the right thing, you're out. Or another example from Second Chronicles would be King Uzziah who goes in to offer himself the incense on the altar and God strikes him with leprosy. Why? Because those offices weren't to mix. They were separate offices in the nation of Israel. But now, a union of those offices is being symbolically shown by the crown, which represents kingship, being placed on the head of Joshua, who is the high priest. And actually, the Hebrew is plural for crown. It says, make crowns and set them on the head. The English doesn't translate it that way. But what that means is that there's a crown for this role, a crown for this role, and they are to be combined and placed on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, this tells us that a new era is coming. A new form of government is coming to the nation. And in this new form of government, the temple of God would be built. Look at verse 13 again in chapter 6. It is he, the, the one who Joshua is symbolizing here, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So under this new system of government where there's a combined king and priest figure, the temple would be built. In the immediate context, this likely refers to Zerubbabel, who's the governor here, who's kind of overseeing things in Jerusalem, and Joshua, the high priest. We see in the book of Ezra, they work together to fulfill the promises of God and to get the temple built. But 
We've seen in a lot of this vision language that there's also a future fulfillment. And I think what we're seeing here is the combination of this role is meant to show us that in the future, the role of king and the role of priest will be fulfilled not by two separate men, but by one man, namely the Messiah. As he builds the true temple of God, which the New Testament tells us is the people of God, the church established during the apostolic age and of which we are now a part if you are in Christ. Let me give you a couple texts to back that up. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Or Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 19, So then you are no longer strangers, and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where does God dwell? In the Old Testament, it's in the temple. I mean, figuratively, right? In the New Covenant, he dwells in every believer. The people of God make up the temple of God. Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills all of these things, the role of prophet and the role of priest, and he builds the temple of God out of the people of God. What Zechariah is talking about, what he is doing in chapter 6, is part of the foundation of the apostles and prophets that the church is built on. That's what Paul's referring to in Ephesians 2. And this action was meant to point the people forward. It wasn't just about this immediate context, but they were supposed to hear this message from God and say, okay, we know that normally these things don't fit together, so what's going on? Well, there is coming a time under a new age, a new governance, a new king and a new priest, namely Jesus, the Messiah, who is going to bring in the kingdom that will never end. We, we read about this at Christmas time from Isaiah Nine, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the reign and of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's what's being prophesied here, that there's coming a king and a priest whose government will never end, and it will be a kingdom of peace that will be between these offices. As we turn in our Bibles to the New Testament, as we keep reading from the book of Zechariah, we see Jesus doing all of the things that God has promised to do. And this is just yet another example of God keeping his promise to his people. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 6, we see that this crown, which is symbolically placed on the head of Joshua, is to remain in the temple as a reminder. Well, a reminder of what? Why does it stay there? Why not put it away somewhere? Well, it is to be a visible reminder to the people of the work that God has done in bringing them to this point, for one thing. So they were in exile. God brings them back out of exile. He fulfills his promises by providing everything they need for building the temple for their own holiness through his spirit. All of these things is to be a reminder. And then also to remind them of the promise and the significance that one day, these roles will be combined and there will be not only a king on the throne but a priest on the throne who is able to mediate between the people and between God. 
So this crown is to stand as a reminder. And the chapter ends with a message that the blessing of God, the fulfillment of his promise will happen to those who walk in obedience to him. Look at verse 15. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This should remind us of a truth we have seen a dozen times in the last few weeks, that God is a God of covenant. Yes, he makes promises to his people. And yes, he always fulfills those promises. But the terms of his promise are covenantal. That is, blessing for obedience and punishment for disobedience. And we have to know, when we hear this kind of language, the fact that God is faithful does not release the people of God from their responsibility to obedience. You catch that? The fact that God is faithful to do everything he has said does not take us off the hook for obeying what God has said as Christians, as the children of God, if you are in Christ. You should never look at your life and say, well, God's faithful to keep his promises. I can live however I want. It doesn't work like that. We ought never to say it doesn't matter what we do because the Bible tells us that it matters. God clearly gives us requirements for living, not to earn favor with him, but out of love and obedience to him. So don't get in your mind that, well, Jacob said God's faithful. He's going to do it regardless. It doesn't matter what I do. Wrong. That's foolishness. God calls every one of us to obedience. And in that obedience is where you see the faithfulness of God. This shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this morning as we come to a close now and come to the table, I want you to be encouraged by this text. How many times, just in the short 15 verses, did we see God do what he said he was going to do? He promised to judge the nations that were oppressing Israel. Boom, he does it. He promises to provide all that the people need for the construction of the temple. Boom, he does it. He promises that he's going to put on the throne a king and a priest, the branch, the Messiah, who's going to rule his people, and we see, boom, he does it in the person of Jesus. So what I want to encourage you with, and I don't know all the requests that have been made. I don't know what's on your heart. I don't know what you're waiting for God to do. But whatever it is, God will do it. God is always faithful to his promise. And this is so crucial that we understand this, especially as we come into the New Testament and we see God promise to what? Supply everything we need according to Christ Jesus. He promises to indwell us with his spirit and sanctify us, make us more like Jesus. He promises to hear and answer prayer. He promises to give strength that we can fight temptation and pursue holiness. He promises that one day we will be free from this nasty sinful body and be given a new heavenly body and a new heavens and a new earth. And why in the world should you believe that all of those promises will come true? Because Zechariah tells us God does what he says he's going to do. There is no promise of God that he has made that he will not keep. 
And Peter speaks to this in 2 Peter because sometimes we say, okay, God, you made the promise. What are you doing? Why are you waiting? Peter said, God's not slow to keep his promise, as some consider slowness. And so two encouragements for you. One, trust the faithfulness of God to do every single thing that he has promised. And two, patiently wait. God's never late, but he's seldom early. And so a lot of times the tension in our life comes down to the fact that we want God to do what he's promised now. But he doesn't operate on our time. And that does not mean that he has gone back on his word. So be patient as you wait for God to do what he has promised to do. He is faithful. He will do it. Father, we thank you for this testimony. We thank you for these examples, Lord, of you keeping your word down to just these tiniest of details. And I pray that for every heart here who knows you and loves you, and for those who don't, Lord, would they see your faithfulness, that you always do what you've promised to do, and what great encouragement we should take from that reality. Because of Christ, Lord, all of the things that you have promised can be true for us if we will humbly come to you, repent of our sin, lay down our striving and our working and just receive the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. So Lord, I pray that each heart here would be encouraged with the truth that you are faithful to your promises. And I pray that all of us would trust you more and love you more and pursue you more than we did when we came in this morning. So thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.